Today's show is brought to you by Lightning Pod. If you have a podcast, you know that it's a lot of work. But Lightning Pod can help. We've been working with their founder, Eric Johnson, for more than a year now, and he's really helped us take the Smart Home Show to the next level. So if you're starting a new podcast or you want to make your existing podcast better, you should get in touch with Eric. Learn more at lightningpod.fm. Hey, everyone. On today's episode of the Smart Home Show, we have a great discussion with Rob Martins from Allegion, where we discuss all the ways that Allegion is involved in the smart home space, where we're headed in the smart home, and some of the obstacles we need to overcome as an industry to get there. It was a really fun and interesting conversation, and I hope you enjoy it. Hey everyone, this is Richard Gunther from the Digital Media Zone. Welcome to The Smart Home Show. I'm joined as usual by my co-host Adam Justice from ConnectSense. Hey Adam. Hey Richard. I feel like it's been a very long time. It hasn't been that long, but today we're also joined by Rob Martins, the Senior Vice President, Chief Innovation and Design Officer of Allegion and President of Allegion Ventures. Welcome Rob, that is quite a title. <laughs> Thanks for having me, you guys. Excited to be with you today. We are very excited to have you here today. This is a little bit of an unusual uh, show format for us, and I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, but before we start the show, uh, I have a question for Richard to start the show. And so, Richard, uh, what do you like to do for exercise and, and kind of fitness routine? This is where... Adam gets to shame me. I think that's what that's <laughs> that what that's the is. intention. <laughs> so uh, let let's uh, be very transparent here. I don't have an exercise routine. I am uh, a, a bit of uh, a lazy butt, but um, I, I managed to somehow get away with that and not gain weight too much. And uh, I, I do that primarily by trying to be very careful about what I eat. The best exercise that I probably get, and it's probably not enough, is walking the dog. So I, I do try and take time at lunchtime and get out with the dog and get some time around the neighborhood. But I don't even get to do that every day. So um, yeah, thanks for uh, sharing that with everybody, Adam. <laughs> How about you? Well, We'll let Rob go first. And, and that was kind of the motivation for, uh, for the topic because Rob and I have something in common. So Rob, tell us about your exercise and fitness. Routine. Yes. Yes. So don't, don't judge me, but I, I am one of those Peloton nerds. So I've, I've been riding the Peloton for probably three years, pretty, pretty early adopter. And so I am a, um, I am a power zone rider. So that's my uh, that's my big form of exercise. So I ride six or seven days a week. Nice. So yeah, I want to be Rob when I grow up. Um, I, I I see his stats and and awe uh, myself. But uh, yeah, I used to be a heavy Orange Theory guy, which is like a high intensity interval training classes. And then this whole pandemic thing hit, and uh, I was very glad that we had a Peloton, which was originally purchased mainly for my wife. And then all of a sudden she was like, God, can I get a ride in already? And uh, I was all about it. So I've basically gone all in on that in the last year. And the other one that I've been doing, which was really interesting, is uh, an app called FitBod. 
And Richard, if you wanted to pick up something really basic, I would definitely recommend checking out this app. What it does is you can basically tell it what you have in your house of equipment or no equipment at all. Mm-hmm. And what I decided to do, I actually heard about it on one of my podcasts, and that's kind of where the idea was, was to do a 15-minute workout every morning before work. So it got me up, it got me moving, and just doing 15 minutes of, in my case, usually some weights, you know, usually a pretty short workout, but it it adds up and like you make progress and it uh, it's something. So, and the cool thing that FitBod does is it also rests muscles based on what you did last. So it knows what you did last. And so if you, you know, did arms last and it'll do leg stuff and things like that. So really interesting, uh, flexible app and, um, something I kind of added to the mix recently. Well, Adam is very modest as well. The, the truth is he, he does pretty well. If you look at his stats on Peloton and he didn't <laughs> bother to share my nickname, which is very apropos, Richard, my, my, uh, rider name on Peloton is chunky domination if that tells you anything (laughs) i love that that's great the whole uh idea of it is they can tell certain uh stats on peloton they can't tell others so the weight ratio versus power on an indoor bike will throw the stats off a little bit so um i might look like i can kill everybody on the road but the truth is i'm no real road rider (laughs) All right. Well, that was fun. Uh, If you want to submit a question or send us something to open the show, you can post that on Twitter using the hashtag AskAdamAndRichard. All right. Well, let's get into our discussion. And as I mentioned before, this is a little bit different because we normally don't connect with company representatives and, and really talk about what's going on with the companies so much as what's going on in the space. What's interesting with Allegiant is you kind of have your arms in a bunch of different places. And so you're a big player in this space. And the recent acquisition of Yonomi kind of brings the cloud and that whole concept of a foundational thread layer into things, not thread the standard, but, you know, the the, the string between things. So let, let's uh, first just start and uh, ask you to kind of Introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about Allegion and its involvement in the space. Sure, happy to. I'll try and not make it an infomercial because I think <laughs> Adam can vouch for me. There are certain people at, at Schlage and Allegion who would definitely dispute whether I'm a uh, actual uh, good representative or not. <laughs> so <laughs> my focus, uh, I'm the chief innovation and design officer, and I'm also responsible for Allegion Ventures. And I also act as the futurist for the company. So what all of that means is that I am the mat or the jack of you know many 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 trades and the master of absolutely none. <laughs> but also I get to dabble in a lot of places. So a legion for those folks who aren't familiar, and I'm guessing many of you are not. A legion was formed in 2013. Uh, I was spun out of Ingersoll Rand. I came in uh, early as the company's uh, futurist. Allegion is really a house of brands. So we have a lot of uh, brands that you might be familiar with. The most familiar from a smart home standpoint is typically Schlage. But if you're an outdoor bike rider or uh, you know some kind of you know motorized bike outdoor enthusiast, you might be familiar with some of our other brands like Kryptonite bike locks or things like that. But as you're probably telling you know able to tell from these first few examples, we're a pure play security and safety company. 
So we typically focus on people and asset flow and seamless access. We actually started in the smart home space way back. So I like to tell the story that our first smart home device was actually patented in 1909. (laughs) And everybody kind of goes, what are you talking about? And it's Walter Schlage actually patented. And if you don't believe me, come and take a look at, you know, our website, patented a doorknob that turned on a light. So whenever you unlocked your door and walked in, it had a mechanical interface and it turned the lights on. And that was all the way back in 1909. Now, I will tell you that he was great and a fantastic mechanical engineer, but not a great uh, electrical guy. So it would shock the hell out of you. So uh, (laughs) that one didn't really see the light of day. Um, But we've been involved in what we would refer to as the smart home space for a a very, very uh, long time. That's very cool. I remember my grandparents' house, they had a closet that the light would come on when you opened the door. And it was just a little bit of a lever or kind of like a plunger switch in the door frame itself. I thought that was the coolest thing in that entire house. I opened and closed that closet door every time I was over there. (laughs) Yeah. Sometimes it's the most simple, you know, applications that that are the best, right? You know, and they're the coolest and really capture the imagination. I I think that's a a great way to kind of think about our company too. It's, It's a big company. I mean, it's a decent size. We're about 3 billion in revenue. We have 11,000 employees around the globe. Uh, We sell products in 130 countries, actually more than 130 now. Most people know us from, you know, home, you know, residential stuff in North America. But what you might not know about us is um, some of our biggest markets are non-residential applications in like higher education, K through 12 schools, um, healthcare, um, a, a lot of these places. And so we're the creator brand for a lot of things that people take for granted. So Exit devices, crash bars. Uh, we created the original one of those. It's called Von Duprin, uh, that business. LCN uh, created the first door closer, if you're familiar with the arm closers. Yep. And then Walter Schlage uh, created the first cylindrical door lock. So we have a lot of history um, and, and uh, you know, a lot of cool stuff. And I know we're going to talk about it you know, later as we go in the program. But there's a lot of things that get pulled from you know, the home and residential stuff across into, you know, other markets, and then they, you know, flow back again. It's a really interesting place to work. That's cool. That's that's very cool. So that's kind of the history. Let's talk a little bit about what's going on really most recently at Allegiant. We, I mentioned earlier, we're familiar with You Know Me as a brand for consumers. Not all consumers recognize that they're also a platform company that allows different devices to pull together uh, without that uh, consumer visibility. We can get into that a little bit later, but that's an example of like the, that's a big thing and, and puts you as a platform player now in that space. So we're kind of curious to know a little bit more about, you know, recent directions and and where the company's headed. Yeah, a- absolutely. So we are really focused on how do we build compelling experiences? I mean, that's what we really want to do. And whether that's as an ecosystem player and partner or whether that's as a total solution provider, it doesn't matter to us. It depends on you know what that end consumer is looking for. We love You Know Me. We'll get into the details. We've been working with them since 
uh, gosh, like 2015. Right. And in part, our, our early collaboration, just for full disclosure, was actually also with uh, with Adam, with uh, Schlage Sense uh, product, um, ultimately with that. So we can get into a little bit of detail there, too. But our big vision, in particular for, you know, smart hardware in the age where, you know, a mega trend that is only propagated more is edge computing. And when you look at edge computing, you know, the real decision, I think people get confused around this is, you know, it's about, hey, what do we want to process locally versus what we want to do in the cloud? It's a handshake between the two. And the bottom line is there's a real balance to be struck. And we have a unique opportunity as a company that makes these products that are on or near the door. We refer to it as our unique geography. In a world of edge computing, if you own that unique geography, if you have that footprint, you may have access to power or you know certain other types of attributes that allow you to partner with, integrate with, work with a variety of other companies and services and different things. Um, and so you can think smart home, but also think about, you know, office buildings, hospitals, all of these different pieces and places. And so that's given us a huge playground to iterate and innovate on. So when we talk about new stuff, industrial design, I'm also responsible for that at Allegion. We try to start with the basics and and remember, because we feel like people got smitten with the new tech and forgot about good design and they forgot about (laughs) the experience. It's about how much capability can I jam into this piece of you know, hardware. Right. And so for us, you know, we always focus on what I refer to as the three S's, you know, for an IOT device, it's security and that's physical and digital. So in our case, physical means, Hey, you shouldn't be able to kick the door in very easily with one of our locks, for example, but also digital, you know, how, how is it, you know, behaving? So security is one scalability, both physical and digital. Hey, does on a digital side, does, you know, does it behave the same way with 50,000 people as it does with five people, you know, or five million for that matter? Um, and then the scalability side on the physical is, hey, how many times can I utilize that lever or whatever it is before it breaks, right? So scalability. And then last but definitely not least is simplicity. You know, physical and digital is the thing intuitive. Like when you look at it, do you know what to do or do you have to pull out the instructions? <laughs> And then one of the things that I think we're really learning about and we're hoping to improve over time here is how does the digital portion of your product interact with the hardware portion? Are you doing it the right way? Does that part seem intuitive? Does it feel like the app actually goes with that? And then also that flows heavily into style design. You know, what is that UI UX that you're going for? So we focus constantly on these three S's. And it's led us to some basic but pretty profound um, decisions. So one you talked about, and I know we can, we're going to get into more into the Unomi acquisition. So Unomi is one, but even some really basic stuff like, guys, we have to bring Wi-Fi to the deadbolt. Right. How are we ever going to make this simple if we cannot figure out how to do this? Because I can tell you, we had some big brains working on Schlage Sense, um, where we had you know Bluetooth. And, you know, we had a really strong and still have a really strong solution to plug in. But it was a lot of work, man. I mean, it was a lot of work to get these things to talk to each other and it's extra stuff to buy. And so for us, we went out and decided we're going to figure out with every router that's made, 
that we can get in touch with, with everything else, we're going to figure out how to make a lock that operates efficiently and still gets the battery life that people expect. And we're going to get that on the door because it makes all the difference in the experience of how people use our product. I've said that for a long time about Wi-Fi devices. I mean, I think just having that direct connection to the internet gives you so much simpler of an experience where it just makes it way more accessible to most consumers. As much as we like the old way that Schlegsense did it because we provided the bridge to that equation, <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I agree with you that a, a simple Wi-Fi device is always going to be a, a better experience. Well, but I also think that Wi-Fi has evolved significantly in the last few years, right? Like five, six years ago, with products that are on the periphery of the house, it's harder to get Wi-Fi there. Now we're seeing more and more products that are designed to provide longer range in average consumers' homes or these mesh systems that are becoming not just geekware, but something that's much more common when you're looking for a Wi-Fi solution in a home. Yeah, for sure. You know, Richard, the other thing that's kind of interesting is, you know, our one of our big themes is, you know, we want to deliver... If for you know for the people that want it, access control for the home. It's no longer, you've heard many people say this, it's no longer about just keeping the bad guys out. It's about letting other good services, other things in. And in order to do that responsibly, because you have to remember a lock is a life safety device, right? In many cases, it really is. And you have to understand the balance between convenience and security. So I can give you something that is as secure as you can imagine, but I can guarantee you the user experience with it is going to (laughs) suck. You're going to hate it, right? But it's going to be secure as all get out. So it's finding that right balance. And I think that that's where Schlage in particular, that brand and a couple of others has really found our stride. We know how to do things that are going to be scalable. They're going to be simple. They're going to be secure. And we feel like if we do those three S's each time, regardless of where we're going, we're going to win. When we look at a company like Yonomi and we look at what they do, and like you know Adam mentioned before, a partnership between ConnectSense and, and Yonomi and Schlage actually bore the Android variant of the Schlage Sense. Nice. I might add in a very short time window too, a pretty cool project. Um, with really awesome results, too. So it, it was really cool. I met Kent Dixon and the Unomi team, gosh, in like late 2014 at the Target Smart Home oh, yeah. uh, event mm-hmm. in uh, San Francisco. Yep. And I was talking with Kent, and we were, we were talking about what they do, and they, were, they had this awesome predictive capability where they could say, hey, you know, people that have bought a, I don't know, a Residio, you know, now it's Residio, but a Honeywell, you know, thermostat, are very likely to next buy a Schlage lock or a Chamberlain garage door opener or, you know, whatever it may be. They also had this incredible technology and and routine generation engine for them where it would auto-recognize the devices in your home and it would recommend routines. And it was pretty early, you know, for, for some of this stuff. But they also have some very unique IP which a very early IP, which allowed them to use almost anything as a soft hub for your home. 
So Kent and I exchanged pleasantries, got to know each other a little while, and then I said, we have a strong desire to take some things to the cloud faster, but we want flexibility in who we work with and how we work with them. So we love all the work that you do on the front end, but tell me more about what you do on the back end with AWS and teach me more about serverless computing. Because I think one thing that we can all agree on is we all freaking hate subscriptions. (laughs) Nobody (laughs) likes subscriptions. And so for us, we had our experience with subscriptions back in 2009. We created, you know, one of the first connected, you know, deadbolts. I think it was the first connected deadbolt, actually, Schlage-Link. And we charged, you know, so much a month. And we, we were trying to find the right price point. And the truth of the matter is there, there is no right price point. <laughs> what it boils down to is, is, hey, look, guys, it's a hard problem. Go solve for the problem, which is you need to figure out how to mitigate the messaging costs for real-time devices, And so Amazon, with what they did with AWS, and then what Kent Dixon and the guys, you know, at Unomi were doing, behaving really very much like plumbers, allowed for us to launch higher and higher quality products that provided awesome functionality for our end users and consumers, great, meaningful value. And because of the serverless computing options, our messaging costs are low enough where we weren't having to charge back for these types of things. So Schlage's never going to be the least expensive lock on the shelf, right? It's just not um, because there are certain quality standards and other things that we have. But what we're not going to do is we're not going to charge subscriptions for basic functionality that should come with your product. I think that's an important point to talk about, too, because for a product like yours, and and we've talked about various products like this, it's, you know, your lock has been on my house for at least five years, maybe six, and it'll probably be there for another four or five until somebody either gives me a better lock or there's a compelling reason to upgrade. So that's a one-time purchase that you then have to support cloud costs for for 10 years or more. So that's serious. And and if you don't do that well, you get into these scenarios where customer profitability over the life of the product can really hurt a business. So it's important to think about those things, you know, early on. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and, and those guys are fantastic. I mean, Richard, you referred to it a little bit earlier. It's like, People think of Unomi for their innovation on the front end, and it is awesome. I mean, they do fantastic work with that. But if you think that's great stuff, look at their thin cloud solutions and other things. I mean, imagine a thin cloud that you could float underneath any variety of major providers, whether that be you know Google, Azure, AWS, or whatever, that gives you the flexibility to take advantage of the best technology that's available. And so when we were you know, working with them, I sat on, you know, full disclosure, I sat on Unomi's uh, board for four years. We became an investor, you know, very early on once we realized what they were. But when we look at where we're going and where we look at our innovation process at Allegiant, it made perfect sense to bring them into the family. Because no matter what you think, physical and digital security at this point, it's just not that different anymore. It really isn't. (laughs) And, and, and people, you know, can make a little example here and a little example there, and I'll tie it right back to the digital end or to the physical end. So bringing them on was a no-brainer, but I also want to reassure people, Unomi is going to keep doing what Unomi is doing. 
<laughs> they're they're fantastic, and I think that the level of feedback and interaction that they have with end users, the startups that they work with, the established companies that they work with, the integrations that they support. If you're curious, I mean, go to their website and look at everything they connect to. It's awesome. So uh, we've really benefited hugely from them. Yeah, it, it's a great product, and you know I referred to it kind of as as a, a string or thread between different products. It's really this connective tissue or engine that allows different products to talk to each other. You might compare it to something like IFTTT, perhaps, but there's a whole lot more there in terms of a directly accessible rules engine. And a really nice interface, as you mentioned, to be able to manage and control devices across different ecosystems. So as a consumer solution, it's something that is a real valuable asset and consumers don't have to pay anything for that. So I think the concern that people had when they heard about the acquisition is, oh, are they going to stringify this thing? Are they going to do what Comcast did? take their engine, use it internally, and then say, thank you, nobody else gets access to this anymore. Yeah, I, I can give a, that, that would be a no. <laughs> so, it, it, and like I I'll, I'll go ahead and go on record here too. One of the things that Allegiant in general believes in is we don't believe in proprietary technologies because we don't think they propagate the right things. We believe in as open a platforms as we can, and we believe in interoperability. We're committed to winning on value, not by trapping consumers into proprietary platforms where you're stuck buying something else because you already have the legacy version. So expect more of the same from us. You know, you know me is kind of the ultimate. If you know um, Kent Dixon or Garrett, yep. you, you know how they feel about these things. And it's, again... It's about interoperability. It's about freedom. And we're going to work to earn your business and be the partner of choice, right? And we're not going to win everybody. Um, you might not like my design. You, you might have something where, hey, the proprietary functionality works for you. But, you know, we'll, 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 we'll place our bets on doing the right thing and, and that the consumer is going to reward us for the value we bring. Very cool. So we've talked about kind of the, the core values that you bring to the industry. We've talked a little bit about what this acquisition means. Let's talk about something that's oftentimes thought of as a little bit more nebulous. The idea of innovation. A lot of companies have innovation labs now. It was the buzzword of two years ago. Every consultancy was offering innovation services. I work with a group of really smart people that do really cool innovation consulting work. What does that mean? And probably more specifically, what does that look like for a legion? Yeah, no, it's a great question. I think it's also something that's really good to poke at with great frequency. So, you know, I always say it when, when I introduce myself, first of all, the title is way too long. Second of all, there is no one person that owns innovation at a company. I mean, give me a break, right? Innovation is a collaborative process amongst as diverse a group of people as you can find. I mean, and it's it's it certainly is innovation. A big part of it is getting the information directly from your end users and end consumers. Innovation at Allegiant, you know, we usually define it through we have some core what we call innovation engines. 
And if you'll humor me, I'll just we just have four of them. We try and keep it simple. So our, our first engine, if you will, is organic, right? So we have about, I don't know, 11, 1,200 engineers globally, you know, around the planet that, you know, are super strong mechanical or electrical engineers that may be working on a new product or have an idea. And, and you know, they generate a tremendous number of patents. We have a huge number of active patents and active technologies. So that's one. You know, everybody has kind of their idea of, well, innovation is a guy in a room drawing things and making this stuff. The second innovation engine we have, though, is I don't know if you remember, but I told you we spun out of Ingersoll Rand in 2013 due to an activist investor. Mm-hmm. And that investor said, hey, listen, the reason we want to spin a legion out is because you're not investing enough in this business. There's a lot more that can be done here. So when we were born, if you will, we were told, go spend some money, buy companies like Yonomi, buy other companies. Go get some things. You're not going to create everything yourself. Don't have that kind of hubris where if we didn't build it, it's crap, right? It's one of those things where you can do M&A and, and that'll help you. So so that's our second innovation engine. Our, our third innovation engine is actually um, something I haven't talked a whole lot about yet, but is um, Allegiant Ventures. So we created a corporate venture fund. We probably don't have long enough to talk about the whole thing, but it's kind of the anti-corporate venture fund from the standpoint of it's 100% about discovery. It's long-term bets, eight to 10 years out. It's about peeking around corners and looking at adjacent spaces to our core business. So how can we partner with early stage startups and other people who are doing interesting things in spaces that look close, but aren't specifically in our core business so that we can evaluate, look at, and, and, and experiment, you know, in, in a good way. And so we actually just the other day had our three-year anniversary um, with the Venture Fund, and it's just been awesome. Uh, we have some incredible portfolio companies, and a big part of it is actually engaging entrepreneurs with people, you know, on our team that would never, ever meet someone, you know, they, they never meet a Silicon Valley-based, you know, entrepreneur or or someone from New York City that's you know working on you know whatever you know space utilization technology or a cool company like Pindrop that does deep fakes you know and everybody thinks of Pindrop and they go oh well Pindrop that's like contact center software to identify fraudsters and I'm like yeah but it also is a much better way to identify you at a much higher percentage with your door lock or something like that than asking Google to do it so all kinds of cool places that you can go with these things. So that's our third is 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 uh, Allegiant Ventures, and then our fourth is now you can laugh at me, Richard, because here here's our lab <laughs> is is uh, we call it Pin and Tumbler Studio. And one of the challenges when you're in a life safety business is you're talking to, for example, a small startup, and you ask them, hey, besides the capital that I can give you to fund your business, what else could I do? How else could I work with you? And typically, you get one of two answers. The first answer you usually get is, is, hey, I'd like to leverage your sales or distribution. Good ask, but that's really typical. The second is, hey, I want to do a proof of concept with you. Now, if you're a life safety business, and you have a brand like Schlage, and someone says, hey, I want to do a proof of concept, the problem with that is, is hey, proof of concepts, the whole idea is to fail. It's like how far and how quick can you go before you fail? 
Well, if you're a life safety thing, think about what that does to your brand. It's like, oh, well, we put this Schlage thing out here and it failed, <laughs> you know? And so we realized, hey, we have to create a separate entity that can can do these things. And the other part of being in life safety that makes the proof of concepts difficult is our typical testing cycles and stuff. And the reason why Adam still has the lock on his door for this long is we test the hell out of these things. So we're talking like, you know, a testing cycle for us can be 18 to 24 months for a lock. And so what we did was we created Pin and Tumblr Studio and said, all right, well, we're going to create new brands. We're going to do other things and we're going to challenge the organization. So in the people we're working with, so in Pin and Tumblr Studio, we'll actually create and launch a concept in 120 days or less. So wow. keep in mind, this is hardware. This is, you know, right. they're not necessarily connected all the time. Like if you saw our first offering, it was called Illuminabi. If you've seen that, basically a smart uh, lit door handle mm-hmm. that actually has a really cool coating over the front of it from Switzerland that will allow the signal to come through without exposing a lens. So the customers hugely preferred having something where they don't have this lens popping out, um, but they get this you know, functional yet beautiful um, design. So a smart device without being connected. And, you know, we saw a bunch of people using it for their like guest bathrooms in their houses and stuff. And so anyway, we launched that in 90 days. So those are our four kind of innovation engines and worked into that are obviously the things you would think of. So we have pretty robust um, industrial design capability and uh, but it, in the end, it's it's all about what do your partners look like? Who are you working with? You know, when you have a problem, are you able to pick up the phone and call a ConnectSense? A, a you know me. A, we're all in this you know giant um, ecosystem, and some of us, you know, some of our bowls look like a fruit salad, and some of them look like a melting pot. And you know, the <laughs> ones that look like a melting pot do a hell of a lot better, which is why we like those routine you know things that uh, you know me so much. Right. Right. So, you know, you mentioned the lab, and one of the reasons that I bring it up is because I worry that in some organizations, and I think many people do because they've seen this happen, that the innovation doesn't really leave the lab. So how are you ensuring that your whole organization can benefit from what's happening from these innovation efforts? That's a that's an awesome question. So we always joke about this is that any kind of SWAT team or special group, I'm making parentheses with my fingers, they die two years after they move away from the home ship, right? It's like, it's just guaranteed. And so we're trying to solve for that from the beginning. It's like, why does this happen? And so if you ask a CFO or you ask somebody, they they say, well, I was unfamiliar with what they're doing and it feels like they're just doing worthless experiments. And, you know, we bumped into a hard quarter and they're expensive. So, you know, you're out. So what we decided was it has to be a, an engagement model with a broader organization. In other words, you can't have, for example, a venture fund at a legion without having it tied to someone who doesn't work on it full time. So for us, believe it or not, a legion after three years, we do not have a single full time employee on a legion ventures. We partner with a company called Touchdown Ventures that provides us with the ability to do really rapid financial assessments and to help us manage our pipeline and stuff. But it's me, 
Um, and I'm, it's part-time for me. We have a CMO, who is also our VP of Corporate Communications. We have two principals, one of whom is our CIO. The other is our chief uh, cybersecurity counsel. And we effectively come in, have conversations with entrepreneurs, and then immediately connect those entrepreneurs with people across the business. So if you had a question for us, and we're digging because we're saying, hey, besides the capital, give us something else. What are you trying to solve for? And we actually had somebody call in and say, hey, listen, I don't know. I want to do a proof of concept. More like, come on, man. You're, you're sitting on your couch at night, and you're worrying about your business. What are you worrying about? And the guy kind of flippantly said, you know, I taxes. This, I don't know how to do this tax stuff. And you, but you can't help me with that. And I said, well, we, we're we're certainly not a tax firm or anything, but we actually spun from Ingersoll Rand, which was an entity based out of out of Dublin, and we actually have a pretty um, robust tax team. Do you want to have a conversation? <laughs> you know, we're we're not your financial advisors, but we'd be happy to have a conversation with you. And it's amazing how just that one conversation with the entrepreneur, we didn't even invest, wind up investing in that business. But that one conversation, um, reputationally for us, people started to say, hey, these guys are, this is different. And internally, you know, the message starts coming out between folks, hey, you can really participate in ventures. And so we took that same model and we moved that model into Pin and Tumblr Studio, where it's like, hey, we're going to have some engineers that know what they're doing, but you just rolled off of a ERP project and you're in the finance organization and your boss wants to give you a break, reward you, but also wants you to be more familiar with the product set and with what we're doing. Let's partner you up with an engineer and let's deliver something together in a compressed time frame. Yeah, makes sense to me. And it seems like a great way not only to give people some variety of things to work on, but also to not to have, I guess unnecessarily duplicate functions within the company. You can pull people from all over the place when you need them. And uh, it gives them something different to work on and also, you know, provides the needs of the studio. It's a lot of fun. People love it. And the biggest compliment that I get is they always refer to it as, as it's their fund. It's a Legion's fund. It's not, oh, the team over here for a Legion Ventures or the pin and tumbler studio guy. No, it's it's collaborative. And I think that's the key to successful innovation internally. You know, you got to have the partners outside and you got to have the data. You got to understand the innovation needs to come from your customers. But allowing everybody to participate and being inclusive in that, that's how it lasts. Very cool. I like that. All right. So before we wrap up talking about Allegiance specifically, you said something earlier that I thought was fascinating, and I've always been interested to see kind of how markets influence each other. You mentioned you're in the commercial market. You're also in the residential market. So I'm curious, and there's probably an innovation bent to this too, but how does stuff that's happened in the commercial side influence home and vice versa? Yeah, it really does. It's 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 a fascinating thing. And the way I always describe our businesses, think of it like a wave tank. So on one end, one of the safest places, you know, and we've seen it for, for many years now to start would be on the residential side. Lower barriers to entry for entrepreneurs and for other people to experiment. And so they come in, they create something new, and they build upon it. 
Well, as it iterates and that wave tank shifts, the wave moves from expectations that are set within the residential, single-family home residential market into multifamily, right? You start to see expectations grow. It's like, hey, they have this. Why don't I have this? And it cuts across into multifamily. So you start to see things like voice integration or, you know, different types of electronic management. And the value proposition is slightly different because, hey, does this benefit the landlord? Does this benefit the tenant? What's the retention look like for tenants? Is the system helping us to retain more people? So then they add more functionality to it. And the wave keeps moving. And so the wave tank starts to get into non-res applications. So you get into a college campus where it's like, hey, I have a residence, but I also have to get into a classroom and I have to go to a cafeteria and I have to go to a gym and I have to access a shared vehicle share or, you know, any number of things. Right. And so they add a ton of value within that. And then the wave tank shifts. And the wave starts to move its way back. And you see the non-res kind of industrial stuff start to get adopted in multifamily. And then it works its way all the way back in to, you know, single family home. And so, for example, you know, one of the things that I think is a big thing that, you know, you and Adam are keenly aware of. But, you know, for the audience here is like identity management and privacy, right? It's like this is a this is a big thing. Who owns the identity, you know, for you. Do you want the ability to be able to use effectively the same digital key to go, you know, into your work office, presuming that you're in a, you know, not at home, you're working in a, you know, satellite location, and then, you know, walk back in through your garage or through your door or through whatever it is and have it utilize the same thing. A big part of that is who owns that identity? Do you own that identity? Do you lease that identity? Who's got it? Um, Historically, in non-residential spaces, that would be, you know, big, big companies, but companies that you haven't heard of. As we've seen technology propagate and the smart home propagate and more things happen like Apple Pay and other things, I would argue and say the megatechs are most likely the people that a consumer is willing to give their identity to in return for value that they provide. Right. And so our job is to make sure those three S's, if I'm transitioning, Richard, your identity, I want to make sure that I'm doing it in a secure way, that I'm doing it in a scalable way so it's a consistent experience for you, and I'm doing it in a really simple way so you don't have to fumble around with a key card or anything for that matter. You can just, whether we're using biometrics or whether we're using PIN code, whatever it may be, that it's easy for you. The example that you just gave where your use case is somebody who needs access to something in their professional life and something in their personal life, that those are commercial versus residential products. Are you actually getting to the point where you're working on the overlap there now? Yeah, we are. Just to be fair, I would say it's still a little early, but my definition of early is Adam can vouch for me. I'm an execution you know, oriented guy with these types of things. So we're getting close. And I think a big part of it, again, is there's going to be some pretty large consumer decisions. But when we talk about the future of smart home, you start talking about like the chip consortium, you know, and other things, people are understanding. It's like, 
some of the biggest barriers that we're dealing with are interoperability. And if we can add value, people are willing to adopt, people are willing to do some things, um, we, we can get there. Very nice. You know, Adam, that's a perfect lead into our next topic. So uh, we're going to take a brief break. And when we return, we're going to talk about the future of the smart home space. Everyone says that starting a podcast is easy. But let me tell you, making a podcast is hard work. That's where today's sponsor, Lightning Pod, comes in. If you have a podcast or you want to start one, then you should check them out. They can help you with every step of the podcast production process. We've been working with Lightning Pod founder, Eric Johnson, for more than a year. And he's really helped us take the Smart Home Show to the next level. Eric currently helps us with editing and copywriting, but he's also available to help your podcast with recording, monetization, website design, and more. Learn more at lightningpod.fm. All experience levels are welcome. So whether you're a veteran podcaster or a total newbie, you should check them out. That's lightningpod.fm. Okay. So, Rob, you you hinted at at something really good there, and uh, I, I thought we could talk a little bit about you know where we're going and and some of the things that are holding us back from kind of achieving the the dream of of the smart home. So, I wanted to talk first about you know some of all of our thoughts on things that are holding the smart home back today. Typically, you know, earlier I would have said availability. I think that's improving hugely in part because of COVID-19, not to give COVID any good stuff. But it's like, think about, it's like, if you don't have an internet connection right now, I mean, even municipalities are realizing and and states, it's like, we've got to ensure, we've got to democratize the internet access, number one. So connectivity is, you know, going to be more of a given than ever. But second of all, you know, you always had quite a big knowledge gap generationally between um, folks and I would say that that knowledge gap has shrunk hugely because, you know, grandma's going to figure out how to use Zoom to talk to those grandkids during COVID. <laughs> She's going to talk to the grandkids. And so um, I think some of these things are, you know, natural accelerants. And then, you know, nerds like us can get in the mix and say, hey, listen, here's some, you know, fairly tactical, technical things that if we could stop doing some of the stupid proprietary stuff that we've done over time, and just take the most beneficial nuggets out of that, everyone will benefit. And I think, you know, whether you're an old school guy like me and you've seen every standard under the sun, right, you're starting to realize, hey, we need to deal with this interoperability piece. And I think that, you know, whether it's chip or whether it's other things, we're going to get there. One thing, though, that I would say is it doesn't mean we quash or, or squash the, the the creativity because, one of the things I always talk about is it's like, hey, you have the the two schools of home, smart home, right? You have the Tony Fidel Nest, you know, old school Nest thing, which was, you know, set it and forget it, right? I, I want it to kind of bleed into the background. I don't want it to be super active. And then you have the polar opposite, which is voice, you know, activated things, which are really active. Um, those are two completely different experiences. And they require different functionality, but it doesn't mean you have to do anything proprietary or that we can't provide similar functionality. Because I can tell you, as a device provider that doesn't really care, you're going to interact with my product more than likely, regardless of whether you have a more passive 
smart home or whether you have an active smart home, you're probably going to touch the keypad or you're going to wave your hand. You're going to, you're going to do something. You're going to see my product. It's not like a leak detector or maybe a thermostat that you don't touch or some other things. You're going to interact with it. But if I can support common standards and a common approach to satisfying um, the end customer, I would say almost anybody can. So I'm a little disappointed. Are you telling me that you're not working on the Star Trek door that's going to recognize me and open automatically? <laughs> we're we're way past that, man. We're working on the transporters, man. Come on. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I definitely agree with you, Rob. And I, I thought the COVID point was an interesting one. You know, I think for me personally and what we've heard from customers, too, is that, you know, if anything, COVID helped people realize the value of their home and the space and, and make some investments in it. And uh, certainly spending some more time, they realized the value of having these kinds of things in the home. And so I know we did it with our own stuff and, and added a bunch of stuff to our house in the last year. And we've seen it from, from customers as well. I, I just think there's this whole move from, you know, I'll just call it what it is. I mean, we, we're moving from gadgets to, you know, modular solutions that can survive over time. I mean, I think the other thing that's going to have a big impact here in the future of smart home is people care about, hey, what's the, you know, what's the footprint? What's the environmental footprint of what I'm doing? Rob, you've got a lock that the hardware on the lock will last 30 years, but the electronics in the thing are only going to last five to seven, right? Maybe a little bit more, but, you know, what are we going to do about that? And as as a person who's responsible for design, I can tell you what we're going to do about it is we need to think in a modular fashion. Now, not everybody's going to choose that, but we need to give people the option to think both from a hardware standpoint in a modular fashion, but also in a software standpoint in a modular fashion. What can we do to ensure? And whether that's the future of, hey, you know, I'm going to leave a spot here for UWB, I'm going to, you know, focus on this particular type of functionality now, but this part is interchangeable. I think all of those pieces speak very strongly to the future of the smart home for Schlage is it's going to be about design. It's going to be about, you know, doing things that allow people to build on it and hopefully to customize it to a degree so it doesn't become a gadget and just get thrown in the kitchen drawer Um, or worse yet, thrown in a, a landfill. Um, which is, you know, going to be a problem. I think for to that point too, like the the people that build technology in search of a problem, I often say like when somebody has a poor experience with something like that, it doesn't just harm that company, but it harms the whole industry, the whole concept. Because if somebody buys, you know, a cheap gadget that seems great and it doesn't really solve a problem then that harms their ability to want to buy, you know, the next thing and the next thing, which hurts all the rest of us too. So, I mean, we've always taken that responsibility very seriously. And, uh, you know, I think some companies, maybe their heart's not malicious or, or trying to do something wrong, but they're just trying to do something cool. And, you know, they've got this whiz bang idea, but, you know, in the end, if it doesn't land, it, it does hurt people's ability to jump into the next thing because they just got burned juicero baby yeah (laughs) (laughs) no i i I completely agree we were so worried that someone would come into our space and just to your point adam just lay an egg right when you do that with a lock (laughs) 
(laughs) you're locked out. I mean, it's like, I'm not going to do this again, right? The good news is our space in particular, it's pretty mature. And I think that in these, you know, spaces where it's um, life safety, people take it a little bit more seriously. You know, we do see people doing crazy stuff. Like one of the things is, you know, kind of back to the routines and stuff. It's like, fortunately, you have, you know, some pretty smart guys like Lyndon at, you know, if he's a smart guy, you know, the Yonomi guys, obviously, I think are very smart, but certain routines are just like dangerous, right? If you have your nest, you know, or, you know, whatever connected, you know, Honeywell uh, residio connected smoke detector, and that thing's going off. And you have a routine that says, hey, I want to get out of the house fast in the event that there's a fire. Unlock all these things or open all these things. If you have it and you allow somebody to, for example, open the garage door and there's a fire in your house, guess what's going to happen? You know, you're going to have a fireball. Hmm. This is not a good thing. And so there is always the, the need to have some grounding in how you implement the technology. I think it can't just be the technology for technology's sake. You've got to have adults who have some real context for, hey, how can I maximize value but do it in a safe way? That's the other thing that we worry about all the time, too. I thought you were going to say somebody just starts a fire so they can break into somebody's house. (laughs) That makes total sense, too. Where do we think, you know, what do we think needs to happen to to bridge the gap? And I know you mentioned interoperability before. Uh, we've talked about that a lot on this show. What do you think needs to change in, in the interoperability space to really take things to the next level? Well, I, I mean, I'll be really candid here and I throw this challenge out to, you know, if, if you look at who we partner with, we don't all have common chipsets and stuff like that. But what we have is we have a, a willingness and a strong desire to do the right thing, which is don't create dead spots for your customer. It is not that much to ask to try and make things work well together on behalf of your customer. We have to get some of these businesses matured to the point that they think of themselves as a long-term business. In other words, instead of being a mercenary, be a missionary. You know, mercenaries build companies to sell companies. Missionaries build companies to complete and fulfill the mission. And I think the mission that we have right now, and I I thank Chip and, you know, other people for, you know, trying to make it easier for us, but all of us have a responsibility to try and be a good partner and a good steward to the ecosystems that we serve. And so that means, hey, if you buy a Schlagen code lock from us, we're going to do everything we can to make sure that it has the appropriate APIs, the appropriate behaviors so that not only does the battery life do what it needs to do and it meets the basic functionality, we also have a commitment to you to make sure that, hey, if you decide, hey, I don't want to have a Google Home anymore, I want to have this kind of operating system for my home, we got to figure out how to make it so you don't have to change your door lock. So I think this is about willingness and I think it's about people believing that, hey, the opportunity is there. Now, what I would tell you is the thing that encourages me is if you look at what happened during COVID-19, the non-res markets are pretty soft unless you're in a hospital, right? They're, they're relatively soft. Residential stuff off the charts, off the charts, because hmm. we're all at home doing home improvement stuff, doing other things, buying homes, Richard, right? doing all kinds of things that represents a great opportunity. And I have to tell you, I'm very positive about it. 
Um, a couple of years ago, you would have heard the opposite from me, but I just fundamentally believe we've started to kind of weed out, you know, the people who are looking for, you know, kind of pump and dump. And we're starting to get to a level of maturity where people are like, hey, this isn't a toy. This is a real thing. And I need this thing to work 24 by 7. I need dial tone here, folks. If they're willing to pay a, just a little bit more of a premium for what they get, we've got to prove them right by delivering consistently um, and giving them the um, integrations and stuff that they deserve. What's your general feeling on Chip? Are you guys actively involved in the, the standards body? And uh, do you have any gut for when it's going to become a real thing? Well, I'd be a liar if I told you any that I knew any details. I leave that to the smarter guys than me. But we are we are involved, and um, we we love the mission, and we're going to support the mission, and um, you know encourage everybody to again. It's let's compete on value. Let's let's not the proprietary stuff sucks. It's terrible for everybody involved. Let's let's get it right, and let's get after it. Let's provide the functionality we need. It's not a bias towards any one thing. You know, it's not that it's got to be IP and it's got to be Wi-Fi for everything. No, there's room for all of these pieces. There's room for mesh network technology. There's room for there's room for all of it. We just need to commit to doing it right. The simple answer is I don't know Adam, what the what the detail is, but I do know things are progressing, and I do know that we're actively you know involved. So feel good about the opportunity there, but. I would also say, you know this, um, it's not hard. The smart home is still a small world, and it's not hard to identify the uh, the helpers, as they would say, in the industry. There are those of us out there who are looking to do the right thing, and we're not hard to find. Yeah, and I think that's how we first kind of got to know, you know, folks at Schlage was there were a bunch of a bunch of us that were all working on HomeKit stuff early on, and we were all kind of helping each other and sharing information and trying to figure it all out. And, um, yeah, in those uh, old uh, wild, wild west days of HomeKit. Best part of the job, the interaction and, and those types of things, that's where the best stuff comes out. Absolutely. Yeah. And, um, you know, I think one of the things I think a lot about in terms of uh, where the industry is going and, and some of the things that are going on and maybe even worry about a little bit with, uh, you know, new standards and, and things like that is is this whole idea of premium products like yours that, you know, really provide solutions. And then this kind of group of players, whether it's no name brands or budget players that are trying to put out really cheap commodity products. I've already talked about, you know, one of the things that worries me is like the somebody having a bad experience that, you know, makes them turn away from the industry as a whole. But, you know, also as somebody in the business, like that's also hard to compete with. And, uh, you know, it's often not apples to apples, but consumers don't always see it that way. So what's your kind of thought on that challenge between those two sides of things? Well, I think the that kind of commodity race to the bottom is a real thing to be concerned about. Um, but I think it also puts the onus on us to do a better job of communicating with guys like you. If we don't take the time to explain ourselves or really market the product in a responsible way, so we go to the consumer and say, this is what you get, rather than if we build it, you know, they'll come buy it. If we don't do that, 
um, and we don't take the time to explain ourselves, which a lot of people don't like to do um, because nothing's perfect. Um, But if we don't do that, um, you'll see a bigger and bigger propagation of those crappy products that do a lousy job. And um, somebody will get hurt. You're already seeing some things where regulation starts to come in. And do they know how to properly you know, regulate, you know, something that's so dynamic, all of these pieces. And I do think, though, through articulation, through education, people can understand there's also a balance to be struck. You know, it's like, hey, we're always going to have like the premium brand, you know, stuff, but people deserve good quality stuff at an affordable price, too. And I think that's the other thing that manufacturers like us need to make sure that we're providing for is, you can't just stock the shelves with stuff that for a segment of the population is super expensive or somewhat unattainable. You know, what we try and do is hold ourselves accountable for a level of innovation. And then as you look, as our products progress, um, we try and provide really good value for the money as you go down through the product portfolio of electronics. In, in some cases, they're not even connected electronics. You know, they have smart functionality, but they're not connected. And people who are worried about privacy prefer those types of things. But that's just another example of where people are confused. It's like, do you know what they do with your data? Do you know these things? But when, when you talk about, you know, new players to the space, you know, and, and you talk about um, smart devices, when I'm educating people, you know, the first things I say are, don't ever buy a connected device that doesn't have the ability to get smarter over time. When you bought it, if it's connected, this is as dumb as the thing should be. It, it should get smarter over time. And if you are having to pay for those smarts and stuff, make sure you're getting the value that you deserve. But when you look at a lot of these kind of commodity items, they're not offering that long-term kind of value. And we need to do a good job of educating people on why that's just a bad idea. Yeah. No, I agree. I think that's something we collectively as an industry have to do a better job at explaining to people what's involved in that, what the differences between, you know, those devices can be. I mean, for us, like one of the things is like our our outlets are UL certified. We have to educate people on why is that important? Why do you care that it's UL certified? Like some people probably don't even know what that. I don't know. I just see that that symbol on everything. It's like, no, it's not on everything. And that's the difference between a product like ours and one that costs $20. And, you know, that means the one that costs $20 might start on fire. Like, you know. Exactly. I think it's a there's an education piece that needs to go to this. And, and part of that is also into distribution. You also have to hold the distributors to a degree responsible. And, you know, my my marketing people will cringe as I'm saying this right now. Oh, my God, what's Rob going to say? But, you know, it's imperative that we ensure that the people who are actually distributing our products don't make decisions about things without understanding exactly what it is, because they're the ones in many cases that are, you know, handing it off. For example, Schlage doesn't sell direct. You know, we're, we're coming to you through a variety of channels, a variety of partners, but we invest hugely to make sure that they understand, A, why, you know, hey, it's a quality brand and all these things. But exactly what you just said, Adam, it's like, hey, guys, there's stuff out there that literally can catch fire. Right. You know, let's get real here. I mean, do, do you really want to put that in your wall? Yeah, exactly. 
Cool. Well, you know, I think we're we're excited about the future of the space and uh, certainly appreciate, you know, the hard work of uh, companies like yours. And uh, I, I agree. We all got to do our part to to move things forward. There is all kinds of super cool, awesome new technology that is on their way in. And, you know, I know you guys have talked about this before, but whether it's UWB, space utilization technologies, deep fake um, stuff, next generation biometrics, you name it. There is so much to look forward to and to be um, excited about. We are just touching the tip of the iceberg. So lots of really awesome stuff to come. You know, we haven't figured out the force field yet, but, but uh, you know, we're, we're, we're working on it. Awesome. Well, before we go, I think we're going to ask a, a quick question. And uh, it was kind of funny. Richard didn't even uh, know that this question was already planned and alluded to this earlier in the show. So, you know, the question for Rob is, you know, Legion working in the door space. When are we going to have cool sliding doors like in Star Trek? <laughs> Can we actually do that? Well, you know, I will say this: if if you're a, a if you're a Simpsons fan, you know, have you ever seen the one where Homer Simpson like falls down in front of the the doors and they close on his head a bunch of times and do do do? You know, um, now I, I would say uh, I, I'll def- I should defer this one to Corey Cerise at Masonite and uh, leave it to the door guys. But I will tell you, touchless technology is for real, and it's here now. And so, Richard, when we were talking about that wave tank and how things come across, you're going to see a lot more um, touchless technology working its way in. And um, I'll be happy to share with you guys. We got a couple things in the works. Um, when we when we're ready to announce, we'll 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 tip you guys on some of the things. But it's going to be cool, and it's going to be different than what people are used to seeing. All right, that's a tease. That is quite a tease. That is a tease. All right. Well, this has been a fantastic discussion. Thank you so much for your time today. Before we get out of here, how can people find out more about what's going on at Legion? What cool things are happening with the Schlage and Yonomi brands? You can go to Yonomi.co for Yonomi. And again, free app. Test it out. Have some fun with it. You can find uh, me on Twitter at Schlage Futurist, uh, usually trading barbs with uh, Adam and other friends on uh, Peloton <laughs> stuff. You can find uh, things about what we're doing from a venture standpoint at AllegianVentures.com. And um, if you like to look at um, strange uh, bio photos, feel free to go look me up at Allegion.com. I, I left one I left one out too. You can obviously always uh, catch us on uh, schlage.com as well. All right. Well, you gave us a lot of homework there. So thank you very much. Now I have to go find that picture. <laughs> Adam, where can people find you? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Adam Justice and everything my company is up to at connectsense.com. How about you, Richard? You can find me at the digitalmediazone.com. And um, I'm on Twitter at Richard Gunther and talking so much less about politics now. It's it's a much nicer place to be. <laughs> yes. Amen. Preach. Preach. <laughs> All right. Well, the Smart Home Show is part of technology.fm, and that's a collection of great tech-focused podcasts that includes Home Tech FM, The Food Tech Show, and my other show, Home On. 
And you can find all of our shows also up on smarthome.fm. And if you have feedback for us, the best way to get that to us is to send an email message to feedback at smarthome.fm. You can find our show pretty much everywhere. Apple, Overcast, Spotify, Google. And uh, do us a favor. If you like what you're hearing, tell some other folks about the show, because that's the best way to help grow our audience. Thank you, everybody. Appreciate your time. Thanks for listening. 